It's Plan B, which involves the old John Matham in conversation with the young Rebecca Davis. Hello, young John, Rebecca Davis. As I recall, I had the opposite effect on some listeners. I remember you getting a message from someone who expressed surprise that I was, in fact, not as ancient as they had pictured in their minds. <laughs> Apparently, everyone thinks I am a withered crone and that you are just nubile and bursting with life. I don't think anybody in the last 40 years has thought of being nubile, but thank you for that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the question I think that most people have in their minds at the moment. What's going to happen with the lockdown? The presidency has tweeted that when Cyril Ramaphosa is going to address the nation, there will be an official announcement. Until then, anything else which occurs is fake news. Um, for what it's worth, I think he'll probably do it on Monday. I don't think he'll do it on Sunday simply because he has shown himself very sensitive to religious sensitivities over this period. And I don't think he'd want to alarm us on Easter Sunday evening. So earliest, in my view, is Monday. What is he going to say? We've just had an epidemiologist tell us that the modeling suggests that lockdown could be relaxed. But there's other stuff. So, you know. What advice does he take? Who does he take it from? How does he weigh up that advice? What decision is he likely to come to? So, I mean, I really feel very sorry for everyone tasked with making this decision because it's so difficult given how little we know about the virus at this stage. But four international researchers have identified benchmarks they suggest governments should use to determine when to lift lockdown. I won't go through them all. Some of them are to do with hospitals being able to safely treat all patients, authorities being able to track everyone who has had contact with confirmed cases within a very short time period, etc. But this is possibly the most important one, John. And it is because it can take up to two weeks for symptoms to emerge, there must be a sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days. Now, that is likely to be a huge headache for us. And one of the reasons, of course, is that the cases we're currently seeing when the health minister comes out every day and says, you know, today 30 cases or whatever, are most likely infections before lockdown because there's a, on average a 14-day period in terms of the infection incubating, in terms of people going to seek testing, test results coming back. So the results we're seeing now probably are from before lockdown. That's a big problem in itself. And the second problem is that the testing numbers have actually dropped during lockdown. They peaked at 8,000 on the 27th of March, around about, went down to just over 1,000 on the 6th of April. So we know that we're not doing nearly enough testing. But even if we were, it's surely safe to say that it would only be at a minimum in a week that we could begin to see whether the testing is reflecting a drop in cases during lockdown, because that's the critical thing. Is it the case that because people aren't moving around, supposedly, that community transmission is lowering? So, I mean, I don't really see how, with the best will in the world, either governments or health experts could make firm decisions on this right now. And if they are going to, then I, I, I think they are surely going to have to err on the side of caution and extend the lockdown. Yeah even though they know how much economic damage it is doing, how many businesses have closed, are closing, will close. Because that is, that you, you, 
there's a limited amount of help to be gained from looking at other countries and what they have or haven't done that has helped or hindered them in their fight against coronavirus. So you, you can't look at the West where this has been most developed because they have a much greater ability, uh, shock absorber ability to take on board, keeping the economies going, ejecting liquidity and so on. And despite that, Germany is talking about a 10% contraction in GDP. France is talking about a 6% contraction in GDP. Our Reserve Bank very optimistically says between 2 and 4%. The longer the lockdown continues, the more our GDP drops, the more uh, people are out of work, the more potentially social unrest there is, etc., etc., etc. And balancing the, the undoubted validity of what you say against the undoubted validity of the economic modeling. Whoa, how? It's hugely difficult. And another reason why we shouldn't look to the West too much is because we have another factor which they do not, and that is that we are entering winter. They're going into summer, and there are obviously concerns about a second wave as the flu epidemic itself begins to hit. That's on the health side, let alone the economic side. But I suppose, John, what the government could do, looking at other countries, is, for instance, the announcements that the governments of Denmark, Austria, and the Czech Republic have made that they are easing lockdown restrictions somewhat. They have been, it's been suggested that these are sort of an act of political theatre more than anything else, that they're intended to boost the population's morale to give them something to sort of live for, while in reality, normal life is not going to return for months. So what the government could do is make certain very limited concessions, but just enough to give people the hope that, you know, some form of commerce will be able to continue, while at the same time, we would all have to acknowledge that this, this is not going to be business as normal. I mean, everywhere in the world, they're saying, for instance, that the prohibition on large gatherings is probably going to extend possibly till the end of the year. So, you know, concerts, etc. that's just not going to be part of our life for a long, long time. And in this country as well, epidemiologists have said that whatever happens with lockdown, we're going to be subjected to, you know, quite extraordinary levels of surveillance and monitoring again for months on end. So whatever the government decides to do, and another option, of course, is that they could lift the lockdown and then reimpose it after they study the data. Because There's I mean, this, this is what the UK has been suggesting is likely to happen over the next three, four, perhaps six months, that you, you lift, you relax, and you wait until the curve starts to rise, and then you reimpose. That's what uh, Professor Salim Abdul Karim, who's advising the government, said yesterday. He said that that was an option they were considering, that, that some modelling suggests that is the way to go. But he also suggested that an alternative for the South African government is that if the results that are coming back, particularly from community health workers, suggest that there are certain areas which definitely are becoming kind of epicenters in South Africa. And I don't know where that would really be. We know the free state in certain parts has been hard hit. But anyway, if that is the case, then it could also be that lockdown restrictions are eased in some places and not others, that some cities remain in lockdown, but other areas get to, to relax a bit. In places like Northwest, Northern Cape, they've had very few cases, so it could be that they would benefit from an easing of restrictions. But the problem is, of course, that the economic hubs our Cape Town and Joburg are the big cities, yep. and those are the places where, where the, the virus is likely to be most quickly transmitted as well, unfortunately. And once again, how wonderful it is to be able to comment on and criticize and sometimes praise and not actually have to make the decisions and live with the consequences of them. Talking about living with consequences, what's your view on Stellarated and what's happened to her? Stella and the Mary and Abraham's 
John, I, I'm reluctant to say this on air because I know it's going to be so unpopular, but I actually felt a bit sorry for her. I'm sorry, but I did. I felt that her video was um, very awkward to watch. But what you- I'm shutting Rebecca Davis up. We can't have her saying that on radio. I'm only kidding. What? <laughs> of course, I accept what she did was unacceptable, and I fully believe she should have been sanctioned. And I think that Sarah Ramaphosa's um, punishment was appropriate. I think that a suspension and a loss of salary is not an insignificant rebuke, especially given what we're used to. But I did think that it, we should maybe compare it to what has happened elsewhere, because Stella is not alone by any means. There's been a whole procession of ministers behaving badly over this issue in the world. Perhaps uh, the most shocking, I think, was New Zealand's health minister, who first of all, I mean the health minister, first of all was photographed going for a mountain bike ride, which was two kilometres from his home, which they're not allowed to do. You are allowed to exercise, but only within like the tightest proximity of your home. And then he admitted that he had driven his family 20 kilometres to the beach for a picnic on the first week of, weekend of lockdown. That's the health minister. He was demoted. In Australia, the New South Wales Arts Minister was fined after being photographed clothes shopping while commuting between Sydney and his holiday home. And also another real just head scratcher, John, Scotland's chief medical officer, who had to resign after breaking the rules she herself had set by travelling an hour to her second home during lockdown. There seems to be this extraordinary thing where merely being you know, at the very hub of decision-making, being privy to all the discussions and anxiety of government does not in any way make you more likely to follow the rules. And possibly the ultimate case, actually, and I hate to say it because we know the man is in ICU, is the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, against all medical advice, was bragging about continuing to shake hands with everyone well after it was known that that was a potentially risky behaviour. I don't know, John, what is it? Uh, it, it's it's the same thing that causes people to overtake on a blind rise. They've got away with something similarly stupid before, and so they think they have – the universe has conferred a kind of generalized immunity on them for stupid actions because they've – you know, Boris has done plenty of stupid things. He's He's flip-flopped from political position to political position like a fish out of water. And uh, and so it goes. And there's a history of immunity in South Africa for political leaders, so people think they can get away with it. Anyway, on to a lighter topic. Today, you tell me, I hadn't realized, and being of an older generation than you, I should have. Today is 50 years exactly since the Beatles announced, we're going our separate ways. That's right. I also had no idea until I saw, saw it in The Guardian today, and what a milestone it is. I assume that you would have seen them live, John, in your mid-30s. <laughs> I'm remaining silent because anything that came to my lips would be reportable to the Broadcasting Complaints Commission. <laughs> Are you a Beatles fan? I am to a degree. Uh, I, I'm much more of a kind of Rolling Stones guy. Um, the Beatles... Even though they did grow their hair long and wear funny clothes and take acid and other drugs, they always seemed a little mainstream for me. You being a sort of avant-garde, life-on-the-edge type chap. Yeah, I'm I'm the sort of man who listened to Chicken Shack and Atomic Rooster and Fat Mattress uh, at, at the time rather than these sort of more popular bands. And how well your picks have have stood the test of time, John, all those Wall of Famers. I think that for that exact reason, I would probably have been an absolute Beatlemaniac because they were sort of just nerdy enough to appeal to teenage nerds like me. I went through a Beatles stage of absolute obsession in my teenage years, which is also a bit embarrassing given that this was in the 1990s, you know. 
But um, I am. I'm a, I'm a massive Beatles fan. And I'm also a walking encyclopedia of Beatles trivia, John, you'll be pleased to hear. For instance, did you know that John Lennon's first girlfriend before he married his first wife, Cynthia, was called Thelma Pickles? <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't know that, but I'm very, very glad that's been added to my my pickle store of knowledge. And another another um, element of the, the kind of Beatles mythology, which has always really appealed to me, was in the period just after they split, and John and Paul were having that kind of ongoing feud, and they used to to take it to music, and in the way, same way I suppose that rappers these days do 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 diss tracks, but in a sort of more. Um, Melodious fashion. So Paul, for instance, wrote, uh, John, for instance, wrote a song directed at Paul called How Do You Sleep, in which he accused him of being a sellout, etc. And in response to that, Paul wrote the rather lovely song, Silly Love, Sto- silly love Songs. Some people just want to fill the world with silly love songs. And what's wrong with that? What's Take that, that, John. Take that indeed. Uh, I'm, one of the trips that was supposed to happen this year that doesn't look as if it's going to happen, even though it's later in the year, was a trip to the UK. And I was going to visit relatively new friends who live in a particularly bucolic part of England. And their next door neighbor is Sir Paul McCartney. And I was told there was a very, very good chance that Sir Paul would drop in for drinks while I was visiting Anthony and Walter. That might not happen now. Very sad. That is one of the greatest losses of lockdown I've ever heard, John. My thoughts are with you. (laughs) Rebecca Davis. Thank you very, very much indeed.